you, brethren. Let's go back now to Joshua chapter 1. And uh, just thank you for the opportunity to be with you again. And uh, trust this study in this very special uh, book. Good to see you, brother. This uh, very special book will will help us and and help sharpen us in the privileges that we have as children of God, what we've been called to, uh, this life of testimony and service for our Lord. And, and I, I like to think of being on the brink of something really unique and special in your life. You can look back uh, at a time, I remember at one point when, when we were at uh, Rift Valley Academy and, and on the side of it, which is on the side of a mountain overlooking the uh, great Rift Valley, in Kenya, and, and you can see Mount Kilimanjaro, the great volcano down to the south, and I mean, it's just, just a great expanse look, overlooking. Well, that's kind of what this is like. The Lord has brought the children of Israel up to the plains of Moab. They, it was a two-year journey that ended up being 40 years because they extended it by 38 years because of what? According to the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 and 4, unbelief. <laughs> Unbelief. That's why they they didn't trust the Lord. They 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 knew the Lord. They'd come into relationship with the Lord. They'd been delivered. They knew salvation. They'd celebrated the Passover in Egypt. Got delivered. Got into the promised land. Got into the wilderness. I should say on their way to the promised land, and they began to doubt the might of their God. And we can all relate to that. And, of course, we saw this morning how Moses, even, you know, he's Deuteronomy 4, he's pleading with the Lord, Lord, let me go in. I mean, this is, this is what a privilege, what opportunity to serve you, to be a beacon of light to all these lost people in the world and, and to point them to the true God, Yahweh Elohim, the God of Israel. And the Lord said, no, Moses, you can't go. Enough of that. Don't bring it up anymore. So there, you know, we, we read in Romans chapter 10, the goodness and severity of the Lord, right? There, there, is, there are both elements in His discipline with us. And we, we're thankful for His goodness. We don't like His severity sometimes, but, but we need it. I didn't hear any amens on that one, but maybe I'm the only one that needs it. So we come to Joshua chapter 1, and now remember... The principle we see in the Bible, not a novice, right? Joshua is not a novice. He's a young man relative to Moses' age, but Moses was 120, right? And, and the Lord teaches through the Apostle Paul with regard to Timothy and his training. He said, you know, Timothy had been trained for years under the Apostle Paul. Joshua had been trained for years. He had had victories in the wilderness under Moses, you remember. I know, you know, John Diorley was given a, a session at the, at the workers and elders, you know, about holding, he, as he put it, dark suspicions. You know, I know we, he says, I'm afraid we older workers hold young people in dark suspicions. That's his word. I thought it, it was kind of clever. But, uh, but I don't think that's holding in dark suspicions if you're training them up according to, and I don't think he would either, I mean, but if you're training up according to the Bible. But it takes time, beloved. Not a novice. Lest they be tempted by Satan and, and fall into the snare of the devil. And, and you're setting them up for a fall when you do that, right? So there's a whole element of discipleship training that takes time, experience, struggles. 
showing in the struggles that the Lord is faithful and we can trust Him. In other words, patiently enduring, staying at it, not giving up when the struggles come, right? That only comes through time, years of a walk with God. Well, Joshua had been prepared for this. God knew what he was doing. And Joshua was the man of the hour. It's interesting what he says in verse 7 of chapter 3. The Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. What a privilege and a frightful responsibility. This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all, and that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And that continued all the way through Joshua's lifetime. We get to the last chapter in chapter 24, and Joshua is saying to the people as an old man, choose you this day. He stayed at it. He finished his course. Paul finished his course. 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Timothy, fulfill, fill out your ministry. You're not done yet. I've finished my course, and henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I'm going to be with my Lord. But you still have a course to finish. And so do you. And so do I. And we need to realize not only the privilege of it, but the the joy of the participation in it to serve and represent Jesus Christ on planet Earth for Him. You know what an awesome privilege that is when you think about who He is. And we represent Him. I mean, I know, just to think, but I feel, no, Lord, get an angel to do it, Right? But no, he wants to do it through children that he has purchased out from the slave market of sin and put us on a solid ground. Nothing like it. So let's begin our reading again in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. And remember, the Lord set that whole assistantship up when uh, Moses was still alive. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I'm giving you. So we, we talked about that in verses 1 and 2 as the command. The, Lord, the command is simple, isn't it? In one sense, go, cross over. But you don't see, and maybe I don't see here in the text, what they see when they they look over to the promised land and there's this mighty torrent river flowing at flood stage. And how are we going to get across here, Lord, with this group of people, this larger group? I mean, even if we use some sort of a fairing technique and it's dangerous when the current's flowing like it was. It's interesting, you read a couple of times in Judges, in the battles back and forth across the fords of the Jordan. Now, I don't know what, I don't know if any, really, any writer knows what that really meant. You know, was it a rudimentary sort of rope bridge, maybe, that they would erect during the time when it wasn't flood stage, but they would erect it big enough that it would span for flood stage? I don't know, but it, it would have been, it still would have been a slow crossing. When we see it in Judges, it's always they're checking people one by one crossing the fords of the Jordan. But here this is a group of a million and a half people, and some say even two or three million, trying to cross over 
altogether. Let me ask you, what's the barrier in your life? You see the promised land. You see the place where God wants you to be. You know he wants you there. What's the barrier? Because we have barriers too. It's not the Jordan River. But there can be barriers of old habits of sin from our old life. Old attitudes of sin from our old life. Old influences of sin that we just won't shed and get rid of. And it takes the same power it took here. It takes the power of God. It takes supernatural power to get through. The Lord brought him across miraculously. And he can still do that, can he? Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens. There's nothing too difficult for you, is there? Is there? Have you been so much influenced by evolution and science and technology that we begin to think science is bigger than God? It isn't, beloved. It likes to think it is. And the education system likes to promote it like it is. But it isn't. God is bigger than science. And science will never catch up to him. And technology will never catch up to him. No matter how much the scientists proudly gloat about what they know. They don't know anything. And I hear them talk about their... Their little space vehicles way out there in Mars and beyond and looking at things and, and starting to count how many light years, you know. They, they can't even imagine one light year and they start talking about 110,000 light years. I mean, in other words, they're saying, we don't know. That's just a clue. When they start talking about multiple light years, that means we're guessing. We don't know. Now, I think I agree with the scientists that the universe probably wraps back on itself and it's a sphere like the Earth is a sphere. And so that, you know, they think they're going, we think linear in the West, right? But in the East, they recognize that things go in circles and spheres and, and so that it wraps and that you think you're going straight, but you're just circling. Interesting thought anyway. We don't know. And the Lord then gives comfort in the sense of promise, first of all, and then in the sense of his presence. You notice that in verse 3? The promise, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. Now that's, that's a promise that can only be received by faith. Amen? Is it logical to think that this would be? It really isn't. I mean, the, the sole of your foot, in other words, wherever you decide to go and have victory, you will have it. Because I've already given it to you. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 1? Blessed be God, our Father, who hath already given us every... How many spiritual blessings? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you believe that? Well, I know you believe it theologically. But I mean in practice. Are you living on the basis of that? Am I? I imagine most of us aren't. It's difficult. It's a life of faith, isn't it? It's not a life of living by sight. It's a, it's a life of living by faith in the Lord. And that's why when we talk about revival, and yes, we're, we're, we're thankful when the Lord does revival in a sensational way, like He did in the Great Awakening, and like He did in the 1904 revival in Wales, and, and like He's done it, even here in the early 1970s at, at the Asbury 
revival up at the uh, seminary and school up there in Kentucky. Yes, we're, we're thankful when that happens. But we can become dependent again on, well, Lord, I want sensational. I've got to have my sight fulfilled. What about by faith, just doing it day by day? Even if he doesn't give revival, will you still stay loyal to him? Will you still step out in faith and do what he wants us to do, even if it's not sensational and nobody knows about it? And you can't write newsletters to everybody and brag about it? And put your names all over the magazines and brag about it? That's what we like to do. That's what the world does. And let's admit it. We're following the world at times, aren't we? And some of our brethren working in a difficult area, in a workshop, at a school, unnoticed, around people that curse all the time and speak evil of God and speak evil of the Bible. And nobody knows about them, but the Lord knows about them. And they stay faithful, loyal to the Lord, even in the midst of a hostile environment, hostile circumstances, with practically zero encouragement. Which one do you think is going to get the blessing at the judgment seat of Christ? Huh? I already know the answer. And so do you. Being faithful in the little things. That's what got Joshua to where he is here. He who is faithful in little, the Lord says, will be faithful in, in much. That's a principle. Old Testament and new. And he tests that, doesn't he? He gives us the little responsibilities first. I can remember when I first came into assembly fellowship, I wanted to do anything that the Lord opened the door to do. I'd work in the nursery. I'd work in, in taking out the garbage. I'd clean the restrooms. I did the, the, I don't even want to say all that. I mean, that's drawing attention to myself. But, but I was willing to do whatever needed to be done, not knowing where God was going to take it, but just saying, Lord, I'm available. And to come up to your elders and say, I'm just available to do what needs to be done around the chapel. Boy, elders love to hear that. Right, brother? We don't hear that enough because we want the sensational. And if we don't get all the attention and all the glory, we don't want it. Well, that's worldly thinking that we've adopted, see. And we need to confess it and forsake it. Every place the sole of your foot treads upon, we know from the history. Now, the Lord already told them that he had given them the land all the way to the river Euphrates. They never did. They came close to it in the time of David and Solomon. The empire went that far as far as they, those lands were under tribute to them. But the Israelites never moved up there and settled. They were supposed to. You, you, do you know why the Lord picked that strip of land there that's called Israel or the Holy Land? You know why he picked that particular location to put his people? Deuteronomy chapter 11 says his eyes are always on that land. You know why he picked it? Because it's a land bridge between three continents. Back in the old days of trade, before you had jet airplanes and ocean liners like we have today, most of trade was commerce was done by land, wasn't it? And so you connected Africa with Europe and Asia, that's the three continents, and they all connected through one little strip of land. Every caravan that went back and forth between them had to go through the land of Israel. 
And so the Lord could reach the largest amount of people in one space because they're not going to cross the Arabian Desert. No caravan's going to go across the Arabian Desert. You lose life, animals, and you may lose your goods too. Too dangerous. Oh, they're going to come right down through the land. And the Lord put them there to be a testimony for him. And that's what he does with you and me. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites into the great sea shall be your territory. I've given it to you. Past tense. I've already given it to you. But you have to appropriate it, see? And the parallel we're saying in Ephesians chapter 1, he's already given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, but we have to personally appropriate each one. And it's a struggle. And it will be. But greater is he that is in us than he is in the world. There's no reason why we have to be defeated people as Christians. If we're defeated in our testimony, it's because... We choose to be because of unbelief, see. We choose it instead of trusting Him in His power and might. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Pretty powerful problem. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. His presence. And that proved to be true. But then he moves in verse 6 to a very important aspect of the work, the calling. One of the things that's so important for us as Christians to, to have the assurance of our specific calling to service. I'm not talking about calling to salvation here. They're already saved. And when Paul uses that term in Ephesians chapter 4, maybe you want to see it in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I, Paul, beseech you to walk worthy of what? The calling. The calling, right? The calling with which you were called. And what's he going to go on to talk about in 4, 5, and 6? Service, testimony, spiritual gifts, interaction in human relationships. See, our calling. And he'll talk about diversity. Appreciate, brother, bringing out the value of the sisters. The sisters bring in, and we're, I'm thankful for the, what God has done in creation. And, and each person has their part and their contribution to make. And there are things that our sisters can do that we men just can't do. And we should be grateful for that, and we should give openings for that, and we should be praising the Lord for that. But there are things also that some of us can do that others of us can't do, whether male or female. But each of us has a specific calling, diversity and yet unity. The body of Christ, see? So he says, be strong and of good courage. Whoa, why? Now, Paul uses the same phrase in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. You remember? Quit you as men. Be men. Be strong. Be courageous. Why? Because the enemy is fierce. Now, the enemy, as we said this morning, is not flesh and blood. Even though people, flesh and blood, may be the instruments through which we suffer... The enemy is the energy and force behind those people 
which is the spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. It's Satan and his demonic hosts. And Satan knows. That's what's, This is what's staggering to me. Maybe it isn't to you. As I reflect upon, this is staggering to me. Satan knows, Colossians 2.15 says he's a defeated enemy. He knows he's defeated at the cross 2,000 years ago. But he's not giving up, is he? He's not throwing it in the towel. He's not waving a white flag of peace treaty with the Lord. Uh Uh-uh. He says, no, no, uh uh-uh. I'm going to fight it right to the end. That's what pride will do to a creature. He's a creature. Created being like you and I. That's what pride will do. When you begin to oppose God's work in your life, your heart will be hardened against God. And you will grow in pride and hostility to God. And you may not even realize it's a serious thing. And that's why we need to help each other. Because sometimes we'll see that happening in a brother or sister and they don't see it. So we want to help them. We don't want to attack them. You know, you don't attack them. You don't put them down. There's ways to do it in gentleness, right? Paul talks about Ephesians 4. But I am my brother's keeper. I do have a responsibility. When we begin to see these trends and these patterns happening, we have a responsibility to pray and then maybe sometimes even say something or even do some sort of action to prevent whatever it is, right? Or to encourage if it's a direction the Lord's calling that individual in service, right? To encourage him. Say, hey, have you tried? I, I see certain tendencies in your life towards this particular giftedness. Have you tried this particular area of service? And maybe even offer to pay for something to help them get going in it, you know, if there's a cost involved. Being involved in each other's lives, it's so rich and meaningful. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to your fathers to give them. Paul will talk about when our Lord Jesus ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. And he'll quote that marvelous passage from Psalm 68, really a psalm of the millennial kingdom, and one of the great messianic victory psalms. In fact, they sang it, as I understand it, as a royal psalm, really, at each one of the, uh, when they brought the... uh, new king into power, they would sing Psalm 68. That was one of the psalms they sang. It's, it's a great, if you're ever discouraged, Psalm 68 is a great psalm to sing. And I think that's what is in the mind of the apostle, even in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, when he talks about the Lord riding forth victoriously. He, and I'm basing that from Ephesians 4, where he does quote it. Only be strong and very courageous. Did you notice verse 6 and verse 7? He comes right back and says it again. And, and then they'll say it again near the end of the book when they encourage, near the end of the chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 1, when they encourage Joshua again. Be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to All the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. What's he referring to? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those aren't just ancient books of literature. 
I'm sorry to say, in some assemblies I even go to, it seems like some of those writings, especially the early chapters of Genesis, are coming into the question. They're, they're thinking they're just allegory, that they didn't really happen. But they did, beloved. If they didn't happen, then your salvation and mine is in question too. It's the same technique of interpretation, see. No, Moses commanded these things, and do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. I know what some of you may be thinking. There goes that preacher talking about Bible thumping again. I got my Bible, I know that, and he's got all this time in the world, and I don't have any time to be reading my Bible, and there he goes again. You've got time. You've got as much time as I do in a given day. 24 hours. It's, it's a matter of priority. It's a matter of what you value and esteem. It's a matter of what you think is important. God is telling Joshua, the leader of the people of Israel, and therefore all the people of Israel, if you want to be prosperous and successful, in the mission that I have commissioned to you as stewardship, then you need to meditate on my word. How often? Fifteen minutes in the morning? Have your little quiet time and then go on and forget God the rest of the day? No, meditation means whatever you read maybe in 15 or 30 minutes in the, in the morning, you continue to think about all through the day. Day and night. It's an old Hebraism meaning all the time. Day and night. And what happens is, as we do that, we begin to acquire the mind of Christ. We begin to think God's thoughts instead of the world's thoughts or self Thoughts, which are contaminated by our old nature. So the Lord says, the Lord knows what's important here. I appreciate, brother. I hope you'll sing Psalm 1 again next week because it's, it ties in so well with what we're talking about. It's, it's a great psalm to memorize, and, and, and singing is a good way to memorize. I wish we'd put more of these psalms to music, quite frankly, because that's what will hide God's word in our heart better than anything. We need to come back to that. In this day in which we're living in, I know the Ephesians 5.18 says spiritual songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. All three of them, I agree. But psalms is listed first. <laughs> and it is the word of God. And Psalm 119 tells me that if I want blessing, I need to hide the word of God in my heart. You see, someone that combats that Someone that thinks, well, <laughs> I don't need to be in the Word of God that much once a week, maybe on Sunday and Wednesday or whatever. Someone like that doesn't know how deceitful and wicked their human heart is. Jeremiah 17 says, what about our hearts? They're deceitful and desperately wicked and so wicked, who can know them? So you think that you are going to live the Christian life and be a beacon of light and hope to people around you and be able to go against the powers of darkness in the heavenly places 
in your own strength and wisdom? (laughs) Satan's already laughing if you think that's true. We need to humble ourselves and recognize that apart from Christ, we can do nothing, right? Nothing. Paul will say, the great apostle Paul himself, I say great in the sense of the privileges that were granted to him by our Lord. In Romans chapter 7, he says, In me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Do you believe that? So cultivated flesh, religious flesh, will not enable us to be victorious. Only the Word of God will. But you have to be convinced of that. And not everybody is. So the Holy Spirit's reminding us again tonight. And some will leave this room still thinking that they can do it without full dependence on God and Jesus Christ. But I hope at least a few of us That's all I'm hoping for. I'm praying for everyone. But I'm hoping that I'm thinking realistically a few of us will go out of this door thinking, it's only by you, Lord. I can't do this. I can't make it home tonight without thinking evil thoughts or saying evil things to my spouse or my children or my friends. I need to be hiding your word in my heart consistently so he says this book of the law by the way Joshua 1 8 aligns with Psalm 1 same kind of and then Jeremiah will quote it again in Jeremiah 17 it's in all three sections of the Old Testament remember we said the law the Psalms the prophets this is given in roughly 1400 1399 B.C. David writes Psalm 1 in roughly 1000 B.C. Jeremiah comes in in 586 and writes it again. 400 years apart in Psalm 1 right in the middle. You see why it's a great appropriate psalm to sing. This book of the law shall not depart from where? That's right, brother. Your mouth. But you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. In personal work, in visitation work, when I have had the privilege of doing that and I'm encountering a particular professing Christian that has a problem with pride, one thing that I know for sure is that professing Christian is not regularly in his or her Bible. Because if you are in your Bible regularly, you will not be able to stay proud. Those of you who have done it know what I mean, right? Amen? It will humble you. But we need that. Pride is our enemy. Pride leadeth to, what does Proverbs say? Pride leadeth to destruction. Is that what you want? A destroyed testimony? No. All that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Three times now. God is saying that to Joshua. And Joshua, I don't think, was a a weak man or a man that was timid. 
God is just reinforcing to him and to us the gravity of this situation here. You're going to go over there, and the Canaanites live in walled cities that go up to heaven. Remember, we look like grasshoppers compared to them. And there are giants in the land. The Anakim are there, especially around Hebron, right? These are men we know. Og's uh, bedstead, what was it? He looked like he was almost ten feet tall. Nine foot something. Nine foot eight, I think it is. So we know that that happened. By the way, there were giants after the flood too. For those who want to hold to that in Genesis 6. But that's a different story. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed and discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now that's the part of the indwelling Christ within us that we really rejoice in, isn't it? Wherever we go, where can I hide from your spirit? Go up into the heavens, you're there. Go down into the Marianas Trench, seven miles below the surface of the ocean, you're there. (laughs) I can't hide from you, and I shouldn't want to. (laughs) Amen? I shouldn't want to be hiding from him. Well, it's interesting how this works out in the book of Joshua and in Judges and for Second Samuel all the way to the book of Esther. We see this principle when they follow the word of God. What do they get? Prosperous, successful. When they go on their own thinking, what do they get? For example, we get to Joshua chapter 2 and verse 1. Now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And that opens up a set of circumstances. Now does it say here in your... This is where Bible study comes in, because sometimes we read things that aren't there. Does it say the Lord commanded this? Does it say that the Lord commanded this? No. Now, what had happened in Numbers chapter 13 when Moses decided to send spies into the promised land? And how many did he send? Twelve, right? And what happened? They came back with an evil report. At least ten against two. So at least Joshua seems to have learned from that lesson, I better not send 12, I better send two. And it would have been really hard for Rahab to hide 12 of them in the flacks of, the, the stalks of flax that she had on her roof. Anyway, he's not knowing that's going to happen, by the way. Now, the Lord in his grace makes no comment on this, does he? In chapter 2. He allows the men to go in there to make their inspection of the city, which is what they were supposed to do. Notice Joshua knows, too, to do it secretly. He doesn't tell the people he's done this. Only the leaders. Joshua and a few of the leaders know about this because he doesn't want to excite the people. He doesn't want the consequences what happened in Numbers 13 and 14. He, he lived that one. 
And Moses was kept out of the land because of that, according to Deuteronomy. So that was a costly mistake. So they go in, they meet Rahab, and you say, well, brother, come on now. Rahab would never have been saved had those two men not gone in there. Really? Nothing is too difficult for the Lord? You really think the Lord has to use sin to save somebody? No, you're right. He could have saved Rahab. He could have left her house standing, which is apparently what he did when the walls fell in. He knew who Rahab was. What did they gain by sending the two spies in there? Joshua, as the head of the army, is he's looking at Jericho. Now, Jericho, we know from the ruins. You can go to the ruins of Jericho today, and, and they have un- Bryant Wood is a Christian archaeologist. We got to work with him uh, a few years ago, and he's a dear brother. And they, it was a double-walled city. There was an outer wall and an inner wall, and then they have excavated down to the burn layer. So there, there was a burn layer, just as we see in the Bible. And the walls just collapsed, just like the Bible said. The ruins are right there. It's amazing. And Joshua's looking at this double-walled city. He knows about their armed forces, and he's thinking, how am I going to do this? How did they conquer Jericho anyway? Did they need any weapons? You remember the story? You remember how ridiculous it looks to an army general? Because it was a victory by faith and not by sight? They circled the city blowing trumpets? That's correct. And the Lord put the walls down, didn't he? So did Joshua need this military strategy from the two spies? Did God use it in saving the city, in in defeating the city? No, he did it his own way. He did it the way he intended to do it all along, see? So I think the way when you get to chapter 6, as you read consecutively through the book of Joshua, which is what we should do, One of the things I encourage people when he talks about meditating on the scriptures day and night. First of all, you need a system. You need to do it systematically. And whatever system you want to use is between you and the Lord. There are a lot of good ones out there. And I vary mine because I'm a visual learner and I like variety. Okay? So sometimes I'll read through... An Old Testament book and a New Testament book and a psalm and a proverb. And sometimes I'll read through several Old Testament books and no, no, and then several New Testament books. There are different ways. I like to make it a variety. But to read through the Word of God every year in a year or, or two. No more, I would say, than two. John MacArthur says you can stretch it to three. Okay, something like that. But that means you're forcing yourself to think consecutively and systematically of the Word of God. Not this hop and skip approach that says, oh, I'm going to do my quiet time, let's see, uh, here. And I'm going to do my reading, right? Now, when people are first saved, they do that, and God blesses it because they're new in the faith, what we call baby Christians, and He'll bless and encourage anything they're trying to do. But 
as we grow in the Lord, we we got to get past the bottle and start getting into the meat and solid food, right? So systematically doing it. And so one of the things as you're reading through Joshua, Joshua chapter 6 answers Joshua chapter 2. Because you get to chapter 6 in the defeat of Jericho, and you go back and you say, well, why did we do this thing in chapter 2 at all? <laughs> Didn't need it. Didn't need it to save Rahab. Didn't need it to defeat Jericho. Now, one of the things that we recognize doing systematic reading, too, is you keep reading through Joshua, and it isn't until you get to chapter 9, and then you see a little phrase down in verse 14. This is now dealing with the situation of the Gibeonites. This is another situation where they didn't consult the Lord, like in Ai, right? They didn't consult the Lord because they didn't want to bother him. After all, he must be busy running the things of the universe, and we don't want to bother him. You know how sometimes we can think like that, which is totally carnal, of course. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, and then the Holy Spirit adds this clause. But they did not ask counsel of the Lord. You see it? 9.14. And and you almost feel the lament in God's voice here. And they're moving along, but they didn't ask counsel of the Lord. Now, they made a covenant with the Gibeonites, and the Lord in the law told them not to make a covenant with any of the Canaanites of the land. The two spies make a covenant with Rahab, who is a Canaanite, and they're not to make any covenants with the people of the land. And then she had to lie... To protect them. But she had faith in the Lord. And that's why she's saved. Just like that's the same way people get saved today. Amen. And she demonstrated that faith by action. By putting her life on the line for these men. And by putting the red ribbon out her window. Which happened to be in the wall of the city. They did that in those days. And so... We see then, and how many times when you get into the life of David in First and Second Samuel, where he will consult the Lord in his early days, at least in a military battle. Remember that seeing that when the wind blows through the mulberry trees, that's when it's time to act against the Philistines. Wait for the wind blowing. And who's the author of the wind? God. And when David did that, he got a great victory. And then we read of other battles that David didn't consult the Lord. And what happened? You see the principle? The very principle that God is teaching Joshua in chapter 1, verse 7, 8, and 9 is lived out in the chapters beginning in chapter 2 all the way through the book of Esther. God is teaching us. And that is how we are to approach our daily reading in the Word of God. Not only looking at the failures and successes of the Lord's people in the Old Testament, but looking at those and then applying them to ourselves. Because they're flesh and blood just like we are. 
James says that about Elijah, right? And we can make the same mistakes. And then there's another passage, and I waited to conclude with this purposely. Chapters 1 through 5 of Joshua form an introduction to the book, but you could use them as an introduction to the entire section of the historical books, the 12 historical books that go all the way to Esther. Chapters 1 through 5 of Joshua. Because chapter 6 is where the battles really begin over in the land of promise. And we're told about some of them. It's very selective history we get, but it's very valuable. There are techniques. I won't be able to get into all of them in the sessions we have together, but we're going to be looking at some of that on Wednesday night and Friday night. So I encourage you, Friday night, as we've said before, is not just the young people. Anybody who wants to learn from these techniques that we see in Joshua can come. But at the end, and it's, it's amazing to me, I love the Lord's Word. I don't know if, if it comes across. I love how He does this. I mean, here we are marching through, and it's exciting. Chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, they cross the Jordan. He holds the water up, and it says he held the waters all the way up to a town called Adam. It just happened to be a town on the Jordan River named Adam. <laughs> the flow from Adam stopped, and they went a dry shot across. And then we have to say, well, what was the Red Sea crossing to teach us, and what's the Jordan crossing to teach us? Are they the same? Not exactly. There are differences, but, and we'll look at that Wednesday night. You'll have to meditate on that for a few days. But they, they celebrate the Passover in the land. Remember, the manna ceases. That's in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 5. The manna ceases. This is the end of the, the manna's linked to the wilderness journey, right? Now, the wilderness is not a picture of unbelief. They were in belief in the wilderness, and they did have many victories. There were defeats too, but there were victories there. They defeated the Amalekites, didn't they? They defeated the king of Arad. They defeated Sihon and Og on the east bank of the Jordan River. They had victories, but they were selective. I would suggest that the wilderness was the beginning stages of discipleship, and that's true of every Christian, where the battles are few and far between, thankfully, because it would scare us. It would knock us out of the water if we were to, to see the kind of battles they encountered in the promised land right after we get saved. No, the Lord is gracious. And he, and he carries them. He says, I carried you through the wilderness, and he carries a new believer for years through this life. But eventually, he wants us to cross our Jordan and move into the place of service for him where we are more visible in the sense of attacks from the enemy. Because once they move across the Jordan, now they're in enemy territory. Every step they take, the Canaanite and the other six nations that are there are going to oppose them. And they're going to use strategy against them. They're never going to fall down and call a truce unless they're doing it by deception like the Gibeonites did. And, and we encounter all of that in the Christian life, see? So at the end of chapter 5 then, <laughs> this is fascinating. Did you know Jesus was in Joshua? 
Did you know Jesus was there? It came to pass, verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho. Now, now you get the picture. They crossed the Jordan. They're at Gilgal. They've done certain things. They celebrated the Passover. And he's looking over there at Jericho. I can just picture. I was in that area where Gilgal is, and I was at Jericho. And, and you can just picture the scene. You could see Jericho from Gilgal. Still can. On the plains of the Jordan River. And he's looking, he's thinking, how am we going to do this? Let's see, if I try to attack from this way, or if I try to go this way, let's see. How should I do this? Maybe. Maybe he was thinking that way. We don't know. The text is silent. But he is by Jericho, and he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, hey, I'm the, I'm the chief here. Are you for us or for our adversaries? <laughs> you ever done that to the Lord Jesus? You know, we get sometimes so absorbed in what we're doing for God in the way of service. And maybe some of it gets heady. We get kind of full of ourselves and thinking, boy, boy God could never do this without me. Oh, yeah, watch. <laughs> and so here comes the Lord Jesus with a drawn sword. And Joshua says, are you an enemy? Or are you for us? <laughs> he doesn't recognize him. And I love the Lord's answer. No. <laughs> no. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. That word commander in the Septuagint, in the Greek Old Testament, is archegos. It's the same word that's used twice in the book of Hebrews, translated author or forerunner. The captain of our salvation, Hebrews 2. The author of our salvation in Hebrews 12 is the same word, commander. The one who goes on before and leads in the battle. Not the one who's back at CENTCOM, giving you messages by two-way radio in his protected little hut. But the one that's leading the way, like the shepherd does, he's out there at the front, the archegos, is our Lord Jesus. Does that comfort you? Sure comforts me to know he's at the front of the battle. We sometimes think we're out there by ourselves. Have you ever thought that? I have. I'm ashamed to say, but it's true. No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Now you're getting the right response, Joshua. By the way, we know angels don't receive worship from men. So this isn't the angel of the Lord. Sometimes the Lord Jesus is represented as the angel of the Lord, but... Usually it's an angel, but here it is definitely the Lord. He receives worship. And then what's said in verse 15 ought to silence it for us for sure. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. 
Now that takes us back to Exodus chapter 3 and Moses at the burning bush, doesn't it? The place where you stand is special, sanctified ground. Not because you're here, but because I'm here. See? And Joshua did so. Whoever you are here tonight, I ask you again what I asked the congregation this morning. Do you want your life to count for something? Do you want to get to the end of your life, whatever it is, and you want to look back and say, I made a difference. My life counted for something in this old wicked world, which is getting more wicked by the week, not by the year, by the week now. We're running out of time. The time of darkness is coming when no man can work, but we still can work. There's still a work to do. I love how Nehemiah puts it in chapter 4. You remember the opposition says they wanted to trap him. It was a trap. They were going to ambush him. They said, come on down to the plain of Ono and meet with us. We need to have a little committee meeting. <laughs> I love Nehemiah's response. He says, I'm doing a great work. Why should I come down to you? <laughs> I love it. And you, you're a child of God tonight. You need to think about it this way. You're doing a great work. Why should I come down to the level of those who want to oppose the work of God? Brother, a fellow itinerant preacher, has in his office, I remember seeing it, a big poster of them building the wall in Nehemiah's day in in that great verse in chapter 4, verse 6. You know, that... They finished the wall in so many days. What was it? 52 days because everybody had a mind to work. They were committed to the work. They had a perspective. They knew why they were here. They wanted their life to count for something. May that be true of us too. Don't waste your life. Don't think you're not in a place where you can't be used by God. You can. You are. Keep doing it. Don't give up. Be strong and of good courage. Keep looking to the commander of the army. Not to yourself. Not to any man. Not to any religious institution or organization. You only need Christ. And that's what this world needs. Desperately needs Him. So, Father, we thank you for this time tonight, and we thank you for these reminders from this precious book. We pray as we meditate on these things that you will help us to see clearly the privileges of the calling which you have laid out before us. To walk in the calling with which we are called, it's, it's a holy calling. It's a special calling from God, and we thank you for it. May we never minimize it. It's a great work. Each one of us in our own special way, in our own opportunities as you guide and lead us. Be with us as we travel home. Keep us safe on these difficult roadways and give us a good start to our week. We thank you for each one that's here and for those who couldn't make it. We pray for strength for each one and worship of you. We praise you in your lovely and worthy name. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.